The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How you doing? Welcome, everybody. How's everybody doing? I'm really glad that you're here today. Man, what a beautiful spring week we have had here in Southern Oregon. I have just loved it. I've been getting out with my family, enjoying the sunshine. Man, those trails are calling my name. I keep looking up at just the different peaks that I want to climb, waiting for the snow to go down a little bit so I can hit some peaks this summer. Uh, we're so blessed to live in Southern Oregon. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and I'm honored today with the opportunity to bring you uh, the, the sermon uh, as we have been journeying through the book of Mark. I'm looking forward to sharing with you the things that I've, I've learned as I've studied the passage this week. I was chatting with one of our elders earlier. This week, a sickness sort of just swept through our whole entire office, and so we made everybody office at home, and nobody worked together. And so we have these rhythms in place as a church and as a preaching team where we study Scripture together on Tuesday, and we review the sermon together on Thursday. And I've had none of those, uh, those things this week, so if my sermon stinks, it's not my fault. It's the, it's the fault of of the process, all right? I'm, I'm sorry about that. I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be in verse 27 today. Uh, before I jump in there and open up in a word of prayer, um, I just want to say thank you. We had our, our Heart of Heritage event this last Thursday. For those of you that know, you know that, that we had an event to say thank you to the people who volunteer in different ministry teams here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And so we met down at the Rogue Valley Family Fund Center on Thursday, and, and we were able to get some t-shirts and some, um, and some little cards so the people of our church could, could drive go-karts in miniature golf. And it was just a ton of fun to spend a cold uh, May afternoon with those of you that came, but we had a blast together. I, I enjoyed my time so much. And I just want to say again, like we are so thankful to have so many people who just give of their time and their talent here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, people who serve in different ministries across the board, some that meet on Sundays, some that happen in the midweek. And, and again, I try to share this with those that gathered on, on Thursday night, but I just want to say it again. To those of you who do serve in ministries here at Heritage, who give of yourself, who give of your talent, who give of your, just your abilities and, and your passion and your love, thank you. God is using those things, whether they're hidden and unseen or they're visual and seen or anywhere in between. The, the way in which the men and women of our church serve Jesus, it matters. Christ is exalted. And those little, those little moments of, of faithfulness and obedience don't go unnoticed by God. And he is receiving glory because of them. Amen? Pray with me. Oh God, I just pray that as we open up the, the gospel of Mark today, God, as we continue this, this study in this, this New Testament book, God, would you open our eyes today? God, I just, I pray that as we, as we sit under the authority of your word, God, that we would have reverence as we sit under the authority of your word. We would have ears to hear the truths contained in your word. God, help me to get myself out of the way. God, may I just be a vessel or a conduit through which the men and women gathered here today or tuning in online, they may hear you, hear your voice, encounter you, Soften our hearts, open our eyes. God, bring confession and repentance and obedience for your glory. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, our text today is rather long, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just share a few thoughts, and what we're going to do is we're going to teach through and read the text as we go through. So we're going to start in verse 27. But before I get there, I was just thinking this week as I was preparing for this message and thinking about the, 
the kind of the intent contained in our passage today. I was thinking about the issue of authority. I think our text today is about the authority of Jesus, and it got me thinking about authority. And, and of course, I'm a grandfather, and I have a nearly two-year-old grandson. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, the terrible twos, they're a real thing. Uh, they are very real. And my, my grandson is just at this phase in his life. He's smart, and he's trying to connect the dots. He's trying to figure out his, his limitations, his boundaries. He's, he's you know, stretching his arms, trying to figure out what he can and can't do. And it's so fun to watch my daughter. Well, number one, it's fun to watch my daughter because I'm, I, I just see she's getting even for all the torture she gave me as a child. But I get to watch my daughter raise my, my grandson, and, and she is so patient and thoughtful. And she sets boundaries for her, her son. She was at the, the Heart of Heritage event on, on Thursday night, and her and Wilson were miniature golfing, and I got to pop in and join them. And, and he, he just wanted to putt every single time. And every time she tried to show him how to putt, he freaked out. And every time she tried to take her turn putting, he freaked out. And she never freaked out at him. She just set these healthy boundaries, and she taught him how to miniature golf. It was so cute. And, and I love, I love to watch, I love to watch uh, her as she, as she cares for her son. And oftentimes, as any good parent, in love, as parents, those of you who are parents, you know we often have to say no to our children, right? And they don't necessarily receive it as, you know, a loving gesture when they receive a no from us as parents. And now as like, I'm grandpa, and so I get to spend time with my grandson, but I'm like proxy for my daughter. And so I, I try to do extend the same rules and boundaries my daughter has set. I try to extend them to my grandson. And this last Thursday or Friday, Becky and I were down at the park, and Wilson found this little uh, Nerf basketball. And he was playing with it, and he decided he wanted to go throw it on the road. And so I'm watching him, and he grabs this little Nerf ball, and he starts running up the hill to the road at the park that we go to. And I, like, multiple times, Wilson, no, Wilson, stop, don't run on the road. And he looks at me with defiance in his little two-year-old eyes, and he runs right out on the road, you know. And I'm like, ah. And so I'm telling him no because I know what's best for him. He doesn't understand the big picture. So I run over there, and I grab him, and in love and gentle, and I put him, you know, kind of in front of me, and I look him in the eyes, and I tell him no, and you have to listen to Pop Pop. And he's trying to understand who he is, and, and he's trying to understand his emotions. And he says, sad. And he puts his head on my shoulder and just starts to cry. He was so sad that he got rebuked by his grandpa, and I started to cry, but it was great. <laughs> and as I watch him, you know, it's like he's, Wilson, you know, he loves it when those of us that are in authority over his life, when we take him to the park. He loves it when we play and when we read books and when we give him food and give him sippy cups. He doesn't care so much, however, when we, we say no to things, right? That's when it gets difficult for Wilson. Uh, when those of us that are in authority say no, we set a boundary, we, we, we offer discipline. Um, in time, I hope there'll be a day in Wilson's life, and I'm beginning to recognize this as, in a, as a parent of adult children. There comes a day in the life where your kids look back and they begin to recognize the value of the discipline that you enacted when they were younger. There'll be a day, I hope, for Wilson when him and his mama are talking and, and he's going to be very thankful for the discipline that she enacted in his life and for the many times she said no to things that were dangerous or not good for him that he didn't recognize. I think about that and I think about our relationship with God. If the text today is about authority, then when we think about what God is asking of us and how God is directing us and the way God is instructing us through his word, it's really this relationship between us and God and his authority over our lives. As long as my needs, is, I, I, I think about my spiritual life and, you know, when things are going well and, and, and the days are unfolding kind of like I hope they would and my needs are being met the way I think uh, my needs should be met, my prayers are being answered the way I think that my prayers should be answered, when I feel like there are blessings that are coming down from heaven, when, when things are going according to my plans, me and God are good. We're great, actually. I praise Him. 
My struggle, and maybe you can identify, is when my prayers aren't being answered the way I think they should be answered. And I have to deal with loss and hard things that I didn't want to deal with. And I wonder, where is God? Why is he saying no? This doesn't make sense to me. When the blessings seem to have dried up, when my plans aren't prospering the way I think they should be prospering, it gets difficult in our spiritual lives when God starts to say no to things. And I look back over those moments, there's many, many moments in my life, and it's kind of embarrassing to think about it now, but all too often, whether internally or externally, my actions towards God weren't all that dissimilar from my grandson's actions towards me the other day at the park. God said, Paul, I'm the one with authority, and I'm telling you no. Perhaps you have those moments in your life as well. I wonder... If you think back through the course of your life, how have you responded or reacted in those times when God said no to something you wanted him to say yes to? Really, it's it's a question of his authority. And as we get into our text today, this is a question about the authority of Jesus. If you were here last week, we looked at a very well-known passage when Jesus cleansed the temple, right? So Jesus walks up to this fig tree. It's all leaves, no fruit. He curses the fig tree because it's lying about what it is. It's got the, the presentation of, of fruitfulness, but its substance is fruitless. And so then he curses a fruitless tree. And then Jesus goes on the temple and he sees the, the, the presentation of religion, but there's no fruit. It's a fruitless temple. And so he curses the fruitless temple. And then Jesus goes back to the tree and he instructs his disciples on what fruitfulness looks like in the life of the disciple. And Jesus says, in the life of the disciple, if you go back to our text last week, the life of the disciple should bear the fruit of expectant, hopeful prayer. The life of the disciple should bear the fruit of forgiveness. And the life of the disciple ought to have deep concern for the unbelieving, for the seeking, and the lost. And that was our, t- our, our text last week. If you think about it through the lens of the religious leaders, however, they had constructed this sort of corrupt complex of religious commerce on the temple. And it was the thing they had constructed, and they wanted green lights all the way around. They had built it meticulously. It was for great financial gain. It had served to prop them up in positions of authority. It served their social hungers. And when Jesus came, he said, no. No, this is not of God. You have turned my father's house into a den of robbers. He told these men, the one with authority told the religious leaders, no. And now we get to see how those men responded to this rebuke of Jesus. That's our text today. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now notice verse 27, and they came again 
to Jerusalem by way of orienting us to this week. This is Passion Week, right? This is the week where Jesus comes to Jerusalem, his final week on earth. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the triumphal entry passage, the Palm Sunday passage. That was a Sunday. Then as we looked at the cleansing of the temple, and according to verse 11, that would have been Monday. Now here in verse 27, we see that we're in Tuesday. Now again, they came uh, to Jerusalem. And now as the week unfolds, this is Passion Week. It will be two days from this day in our text where the Last Supper will take place on Thursday, the crucifixion happens on Friday, and then Jesus conquers sin and death, rises to life on Sunday. It's this holy week, bookended by the triumphal entry and his triumph over the grave, right? And so we have to look at what's happening here. So this is Tuesday, the day previous, Jesus cleansed the temple. So these men who were rebuked by Jesus come to him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Four times in our passage, the word authority is mentioned. There are three questions in our passage. So if you want to take notes, here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. The first thing we see in our text, verse 27 through 33, we see the questioning of Jesus' authority. We see the questioning of Jesus' authority. Now, he was walking in the temple, our passage tells us. Now, the very... Uh, the, the, the previous day was the day that Jesus overturned tables and he chased out the money changers and in the stockyards, the Pharisees had turned the, 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 the court of the Gentiles into this place for financial gain and it was a perversion to Jesus and he rebuked them and said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so he's confronting these men again in the same spot. Did they, I mean, we don't know, but maybe the the money-changing cables are set back up. Maybe the stockyards are set back up and they're profiting again. We don't know. But there's this confrontation. And the authority of Jesus is the thing that they're discussing. Who in the world gave you the authority, carpenter from Nazareth, to come into our temple? Well, we're in leadership and overturn our tables and upend our way of doing things. Who do you think you are? That's the attitude these men have as they approach Jesus. And that the heart of these men have been for destruction. Going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 6, when Jesus was still in Nazareth, or still in Galilee, doing his Galilee ministry, after he had healed a man with a withered hand on Sabbath, they had already begun to plot to destroy him, we read in, in, in chapter 3, verse 6, right? And then if you look at the middle section of Mark's gospel, chapters 8, 9, and 10, in each of those three chapters, Jesus told his disciples that when they got to Jerusalem, he was going to be delivered over to the religious authorities, right? He uses the phrase chief chief priests, scribes, and elders to say he's going to be delivered over to these men. They're going to kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. So as Jesus is confronting these men on Temple Mount, he is inciting their anger and they are plotting the ways in which they're going to kill him. They are hell-bent on destroying Jesus. Mark has let us know that as well. And their quest here, as they, as they ask this question of Jesus, their quest is not for truth. They've been sent it's a very calculated effort by the religious authorities. It's a very calculated effort. They have been sent to hatch a scheme toward the destruction of Jesus because the one with authority had said no and had exposed their hypocrisy. And this was their rebellion against him. And so as they ask this question of Jesus, of course he knows what their plans are, so he answers their question with a question. And the interesting thing is this. He's not just doing a redirect. Jesus is actually getting to the answer of their question. Their question is, by what authority do you do these things? And then Jesus asks them a question about John the Baptist. But in the end, Jesus ultimately is getting to the answer of their first question. Ultimately, Jesus is helping us understand by whose authority he does these things. So if you look back at 
at verses 29 and, and 30, Jesus asked them this question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? That was referring to John the Baptist, his cousin. Now the people held that John the Baptist was a prophet of God, that his baptism was from heaven. The people held him up as a, as a prophet. He was widely uh, popular. And so these Pharisees are in a tricky situation. If they say that his baptism is from heaven, they'll have to say why then they've rejected his, his authority or his baptism. And if you look back through what John the Baptist said about Jesus, here's the interesting thing. By asking this question, Jesus also knows what John the Baptist said about him. If you look back at what John the Baptist said during his ministry, he held Jesus up. He said, he must increase and we must decrease. This is what John the Baptist said of Jesus. He said, I'm not even worthy to undo the strap of his sandal. John the Baptist said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist said that Jesus was the, uh, he says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so Jesus is answering their question. By what authority to do these things? Jesus says, well, you know who John the Baptist is. He's the one who prepared the way for me. You know what he said about me? He said, by whose authority? Uh, uh, he's worthy of being exalted. I am the Lamb of God. I am the Son of God. And so by asking this question, Jesus is, is, is absolutely asserting who he is, by whose authority he does these things. And he's also painting these men in a corner. On one level, I, I read this week, that on, on one level, Jesus is unmasking the heart of these leaders because he knows that their quest is not about truth or honesty. These men aren't concerned with, with truth or honesty. But on the other level, Jesus is answering this question. Does John affirm the authority of Jesus? This question is, by whose authority does Jesus do these things? The answer is by God's authority. That's it. And so when Jesus asks the question of them, they refuse to answer and thus they refuse to affirm the authority of Jesus. And so the first thing we see at the end of chapter 11 is the questioning of Jesus' authority. Let's pick up now in verse 1, chapter 12. Let's read through verse 11. And he began to speak to them, Jesus, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he asked a servant to the tenants. He sent a servant to the tenants to, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. Verse 8. And they took him out, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do, Jesus asks? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture, Jesus said? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, normally when you see a chapter heading in the Bible, it normally signifies a significant shift in the text. But, but if, if you look here at verse 1, we read that he, he began to speak to them in parables. So who's them? Well, them is the chief priests. It's the scribes. 
It's the elders who were questioning the authority of Jesus. This is one interaction. So they asked this question of Jesus. Jesus asked the question back. They refused to answer it. So then Jesus pivots, and it's the same interaction when chapter 12 starts. And he just says, okay, let me try a different tactic. I- I'm no longer going to answer your question. You're not going to answer my question. But I'm going to speak a truth to you through the use of parable. And so Jesus immediately begins to speak to them in parables. And this parable has everything to do with the authority of Jesus. And so the second thing we see, if you're a note taker, is we see the explaining of Jesus' authority. This is an explanation by Jesus of his authority, and he's doing so through the use of parable. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Mark's Gospel... You know, it's, it's one of the four portraits of Jesus. It doesn't highlight the, the parabolic teachings of Jesus. Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel, are filled with Jesus' parables. The last time we saw a parable in Mark's gospel was chapter 4, when Jesus was teaching with these, these, uh, these parables about agriculture, about seeds that spoke about you know, his kingdom. And so here, when Jesus is speaking in a parable, it's different than when he uses parables in, in the gospel of Luke and Matthew. Oftentimes in those gospels, when Jesus spoke in parable, he was masking or he was hiding truths about the kingdom of God. But here, as Jesus shares this story with these there's a crowd, and, but his target is these religious uh, frauds. As Jesus is speaking to them, he's not hiding the intent of this parable. Those men who were listening to Jesus tell this story, they knew exactly what Jesus was doing. He was indicting them in their corrupt leadership. And so as they're listening to Jesus tell this story, their blood is boiling at Jesus as he tells the story. And, and Jesus, in so doing, is, is purposefully or, or deliberately inciting their hatred for him. Right? He's already said he was going to come to the city of Jerusalem. He was going to be delivered over to these men and they were going to kill him. And so he does not care about political correctness. Jesus calls sin, sin. He doesn't care the implication. And he just, he's put these men in his sights and he's exposing them for who they are. And it's interesting because if you look at the way Jesus interacts, especially in Mark's gospel, when he's hanging out with normal folks, like people who aren't in positions of religious authority, average, everyday men and women like you and me, he's, he's lowly. He's approachable. He's gentle. He's mild. He's meek. But when he gets in the presence of these elitists, these frauds, these corrupt men, these religious authorities who corrupted the things of God for personal gain, when Jesus interacts with these guys, he pulls no punches. He goes for the jugular. And as you look at the parable, it's, it's clear in the telling of this parable who the real authority belongs to. It's not hard to understand. A man plants a vineyard. He builds a fence, digs a pit for the wine, puts up a tower to protect the vineyard. He goes to another country. He, he leases his vineyard to these tenants who are going to come in. And like sharecroppers or like tenants, they're going to go ahead and run the vineyard for him. And then when the season came for fruit, the man who's in a far-off nation sends some of his servants to, to get some of the fruit from the vineyard he owns... But the tenants don't like the servants coming, so they beat and kill a bunch of them. So the owner of the vineyard says, man, well, I'll send my son. If I send my son, surely they'll show respect to the the son or the heir of the owner of the vineyard. But as the parable tells us, they send his beloved son. They recognize this beloved son is the heir and all the, the inheritance belongs to him. So what do they do? They plot to kill him and they do. They kill him and they throw him outside of the vineyard. And it's important that in the parable... The owner of the vineyard refers to his son as his beloved son. Where else have we heard this language in Mark's gospel? You go back to Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is being baptized. 
And as he's being baptized by John the Baptist, remember the, the audible voice of the Father speaks from heaven. You remember what he says? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Where else have we heard the phrase beloved son in Mark's gospel? We heard it in chapter 9. The transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured in, in the presence of James, Peter, and John. And in his magnificence, we read that a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud in Mark, 7, Mark 9, verse 7. And, and the Father says audibly from heaven, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So as these disciples, who no doubt have shared the stories of the audible voice of God, no doubt they have heard the, the, the stories about how God the Father speaks audibly from heaven, calling Jesus his beloved Son. So when he injects the phrase beloved Son into the story, it is unmistakable what he's talking about, right? In this parable, the, the, the owner of the vineyard is God. In this parable, the vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders, the corrupt religious leaders who are present. In this parable, the servants are the prophets that came before Jesus in the Old Testament, and the beloved son is Jesus Christ himself. And in the parable, ultimately, the owner sends his heir, the one with ultimate authority, and they kill him. Now there's an interesting tangent, but man, I would encourage you, if you have a chance to go back and read Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's using all this same language of vineyard and beloved son, and he's telling a story about the corrupt vineyard. In fact, but in, in Isaiah 5, it's interesting, the prophecy in that, in that Old Testament passage is directed towards the vineyard. The vineyard's barren, and it brings forth rotten grapes, and so God speaks his judgment over the vineyard. But when Jesus sort of borrows from that imagery in this parable, his, his anger is not directed toward the vineyard. It's directed toward the religious clergy, the corrupt authorities. God's wrath is directed, as I read this week, towards the corrupt clergy. It's an interesting read. And no doubt, those gathered on that day listening to Jesus share this parable, immediately their minds would have went to this well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 5. There's some meat on the bone there that I can't take off today. This parable is a history of God's dealing of Israel. As Jesus tells this story, he's telling the story of God's dealing with Israel throughout all of biblical history. And in fact, the story as Jesus tells it is still unfolding because the beloved son, whom they will kill in three days, is present telling the story. And then what he does, when he gets to the end of the, when he gets to the end of the parable, Jesus asks, uh, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Doesn't give them a chance to answer the question. He's looking these men in the eyes, the very men who are going to condemn him to death, right? And he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? In other words, what is God going to do with Israel? He says, will he, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And have you not read the scripture? Then he quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so as we look at the teachings of Jesus here, he describes himself in the parable and in this quote from Psalm 118, he is the beloved son, he is the heir, and he is the cornerstone. Who has authority? The beloved son, the heir who has all the inheritance, and the cornerstone. Jesus is clearly establishing he is the one to whom all authority belongs. And there's a couple things happening here that I think we need to wrap our mind around, especially when we look at this Old Testament quote out of, out of the 118th Psalm. Number one, Jesus is saying something very dramatic about what is happening in God's plan. 
There's a shift taking place, and Jesus is saying something very dramatic is happening in God's plan. No longer is the plan of God just about Israel, but he's now building a a new building for all nations. Even in the parable, he talks about giving the vineyard to others. And in the quote of the Old Testament passage, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a picture of Gentile inclusion. This is a picture of the redemptive work of God, the redemptive work of God being extended to every tribe, tongue, language, and people group. This is about God's plan for all of humanity. Israel's religious leadership, right as we're reading it, real time, Mark chapter 12, Israel's religious leadership is rejecting the beloved Son of God. They're rejecting the stone. And so God is, is going to give the vineyard to others. And the rejected stone is becoming the cornerstone for all people. And so as you look at Psalm 118, that he quotes here in verses 10 and 11, and as you look at the parable, they go hand in hand, right? So, so the, tenants of the, uh, the tenants in the parable are, are the builders who rejected the, the stone. Uh, um, the beloved son in the parable is the stone that becomes the cornerstone. Uh, the tenants killed the son in the parable. The builders rejected the stone in the quote. They go together. And now Jesus is saying, as a part of the divine plan of God, this stone, this rejected stone, this beloved son who's been killed has become the cornerstone from rejection to the place of greatest authority. And, and that's really what the second thing that Jesus is doing here by quoting this Old Testament passage is he is predicting his resurrection. He's already said it three times in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. But here, through the creative use of Psalm 118, he's again, in the presence of the men who are going to kill him, he is predicting his resurrection. And he said it's the Lord's doing. That quote from Psalm 118 says all this, the horrible things we read about in the parable, the rejection of the stone, something that would cause most of us to beat our chest and say, God, why? God, why? He's saying, no, no, this is the Lord's doing. This is the sovereign will of God. These these evil, corrupt clergy, these corrupt religionists are scheming and planning and they're figuring out a way to destroy Jesus. They think they're operating on their own vices. This they don't they have nothing. They have the only the only authority they have is the authority that God gives them, right? And this is the plan of God. It is God who is delivering his son over to these men. They're just pawns in the sovereign plan of God. And the Apostle Paul, in in Philippians chapter 2, he speaks about this sort of dichotomy between the rejected Son of God and who he is as the exalted king. If you go to Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, listen to the way Paul kind of captures the rejection of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. Paul writes, "...in being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is through the rejection and the humility of Jesus that he's exalted as king. Paul captures that. By placing himself, Jesus, in the center of this quote, this Psalm 118 quote, he is laying out two options. For them then... And for us today, these are two options that rest before every human being. One, you can reject Jesus. Or two, you can accept him. If you accept him, there's only one way to relate to him because he's the cornerstone. Either he's your cornerstone or he isn't. He either gives shape 
and direction to the entirety of your life or he doesn't. And so these religious men had to make a decision on how they were going to respond to this revelation of the authority of Jesus. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Catch this last sentence. So they left him, and they went away. So after questioning his authority, after receiving explanation of his authority, finally we see the response to Jesus' authority. And that's the third thing I would encourage you to write down. In verse 12 of chapter 12, we see the response of the scribes and the elders and the chief priests, and they left him and went away. They want to arrest Jesus. They would have done it right there on the spot, but they feared the people. And so this parable wasn't just about them, right? It was against them. And so they leave Jesus. So they go and they plan and they scheme. And we don't see or hear of these men again until the 14th chapter when they show up. Well, when Judas shows up being sent by them with the betrayer's kiss. And so they go off. So we see how their response is. It's a full and utter rejection of Jesus. Very different from how we see average folks, right? If you go back to, to chapter 10, you remember chapter 10, right? Before the triumphal entry, when blind Bartimaeus was, was healed by Jesus, the last words of chapter 10 tell us that, they, they, that, he, that Bartimaeus followed Jesus on his way. But here, these Pharisees, they have made their bed. Their rejection of Jesus is final. And in it, they're utterly alone. See, the life and the things that they are leaving for Jesus, they won't last. Their little monopoly on their religious authority that they so joyfully and hungrily cling on to, it will not last. The leverage they have over people through religious coercion, it will not last. The social position and the social status that they possess and cherish, it will not last. They have rejected the cornerstone. Like a spoiled child who has been told no, they have rejected the cornerstone. They have willingly built their house on sand. And whatever they're building, it will not last. So having rejected him, where do they turn? Well, they turn to planning and scheming. And we'll see that in chapter 14. And so as we look at this passage, as we look at this, these, I don't know, what is it, 22 verses, 21 verses, it's, it's a teaching about the authority of Jesus, and the application is still the same. For them then and for us today, the application is either you and I can look at Jesus and his authority, and we can reject his authority, we have that option, or we can accept his authority. Now, as we've covered in previous weeks, many people do reject Jesus. In fact, Jesus said that the, the path to destruction is wide, and many will take it. And the path of righteousness is narrow and few will find it. So more people are going to reject Jesus than receive Jesus. And so those who reject him, just be warned. If you choose to reject Jesus, you will be completely and utterly on your own. In this life, in your death, and when you stand before the judge one day. But if you accept Jesus... I mean, the reward is unending. 
A preacher who I deeply respect put it this way. He said, if you entrust yourself to Jesus, he will become your cornerstone upon which both your life and your eternity will be built. Profound. If you entrust yourself to Jesus, he will become your cornerstone upon which both your life and your eternity will be built. Now the cornerstone is put in the place of greatest importance. The cornerstone is in charge of the entire structure. The cornerstone authoritatively determines the direction of the thing. And if you're building your life on the cornerstone, you're building your life on the one rock-solid thing you can build your life upon. Jesus was never intended to be our buddy. He's not our last resort. He's not our genie in a bottle. He's not Santa Claus that's going to give us the things we want when we want them. Jesus is not our confidant. He's not our consultant. He's not our counselor. You can have him as your cornerstone or you can't have him at all. The Apostle Peter got this. After Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out on the church and Peter rose and he preached the gospel message and the church was exploding and him and the disciples were doing this new thing in the city of Jerusalem. There's this really cool scene in Acts chapter 3 when they're going into the temple and there's this man by the beautiful gate and he's been crippled for his whole life and and he's asking to be healed and Peter says this amazing thing to this guy in in Acts 3 verse 6. He says to this, this this lame beggar, he says, I have no silver and gold but what I do have I give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man is healed. And and the fact that that God, by his spirit, is working through his servants, it's rising the ire of the religious leadership. And so the same men that condemned Jesus to death bring Peter and his associates before them. And they're questioning them. And then Peter, talking about Jesus as the cornerstone, speaks this truth into the lives of those religious leaders and into our life today. And here's what Peter says. Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man standing before you is well. And then he says this, Acts 4.11. This Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter, the great preacher, summed it up perfectly. There's only one cornerstone. There's only one beloved son. There's only one heir. And when we encounter him, when we authentically encounter him, the living God, we turn from all other gods And we seek salvation from him alone because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And with Jesus as the cornerstone of our salvation, Christ is the head. He is the foundation of all that God is doing. He is the cornerstone of all of God's worldwide redeeming work. He is the cornerstone of the church and he is to be the cornerstone of our lives. He has provided in his death and resurrection the grounds for our forgiveness And he is the cornerstone of our living, and he is the cornerstone of our life. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it this way, Matthew 7, 24. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and who does them will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And that's the truth of who Jesus is. 
Jesus is the strong tower to which we run for protection. Jesus is the anchor to which we cling in the midst of a storm. Jesus is the cornerstone who anchors us to God, who gives direction and shape to our life, directs us throughout this life, and ultimately directs us into life eternal. And as I was teaching this and thinking about this text, and I've been meditating on it all week, and I, was, I actually just pulled my wife aside this morning. We got to the church a little bit early, and I was just thinking in my office before I preached, just praying, I was thinking, you know, this, it's, it's easy sometimes, as I shared with you in the past, when you're a teacher of Scripture, it's easy to kind of approach this like, like any sort of academic um, pursuit, right? I can, I, can, I can reduce sometimes the Word of God to like a textbook. And my job is just to teach the particularities of the text to the people. And I forget to be a worshiper. I forget to let the text affect me as I'm trying to figure out how to teach it to the people that God has called me to teach. And as I was thinking about that this morning, I began to think about my life. And I began to think about the last 10 years of my life. There's been lots of loss in our life, in my family's life over the last 10 years, and the losses are continuing. It's been hard. Pastor Jeremy, a couple weeks ago, was sharing with me a quote from Jonathan Edwards, a great, uh, the man at the center of the Great Awakening in the 1700s here in America, a great American preacher. And Jonathan Edwards one time said, according to Jeremy, that Job, in the book of Job, experienced all his losses in a day, but we're not that much different. The differences between you and me is we experience our losses over the course of a lifetime but we all experience losses. And it seems to me the longer I live on this earth, the reality of loss and hard things just becomes a reality of life. And anyone who's lived any length of time, I can, I can see some faces of people here, and I know a lot of your stories now. It's been one of the blessings of being your pastor for a year and a half. I can look at some of your faces, and I know, I know some of the heartbreaking losses you have endured. And that's just a reality for us. And so as I thought about my life in the last, especially the last 10 years, it was the season of my life where the theoretical had to become uh, real. I can remember, as I've probably shared with you in the past, when my, my niece passed away. And she was 17, and her death was by suicide, and it was awful, right? And I can remember those minutes, hours, days after when, when, when the reality of her pending death hit us, and it and she clung to life for a few days before she passed. And I can remember being with her in the ICU, and I can remember being with my sister. And I, I, was, I was, what, like 36, I think. 37, maybe. And I can remember sitting in the ICU in, in Nina, Wisconsin, and I was just like, this is hell. This is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. This is horrible. I was watching my sister grieve, and and uh, I can remember sitting there, and I sat down with a brother recently who, who had a hard loss, and I shared these truths with, with this brother from Heritage recently. And I can remember thinking, okay, what is true? What is true in this moment? And, and I just got these three things that the Lord just gave me. Here's three things that are true. God, even in this, you don't cease to be good. Somehow, some way, in the, in the aftermath of the darkness of suicide, you're good. And in this, God, you are sovereign. You haven't fallen asleep. You haven't neglected us. You haven't given up your sovereignty. You're still sovereign over this somehow. And even in this, God, somehow, some way, you're going to work this out for my good and for your glory. And I, I remember like, and I, I know I shared this with you in the past, but I can remember just thinking to myself, is that true? Like, do I really believe this is true? I can remember my sister when we were driving to the hospital. My niece had to get life lighted to this hospital. I can remember it was just her and I were driving, trying to beat the helicopter. Um, I can remember my sister asking me, I can remember her asking me to pray that God would save my sister, my niece's life. You know, and we knew how bad it was. I just knew that wasn't a reality. And I can remember sitting in that aftermath saying, 
God, are you good? Really? Are you sovereign, God? Are you really aware of the hell that is unfolding down here in this ICU? Are you honestly going to redeem this, Lord? And I think that's, see, for us, it's, you know, often when we talk about issues of authority, we kind of make a very simplistic application. Does God have authority over your finances? Yes. And we can hit these little check boxes. But where the rubber meets the road is in these moments, right? This is where the rubber meets the road. Do I honestly believe that God is for my good? And when he says no to me in the most painful and heart-wrenching and difficult ways for me to understand, is he really saying yes to something greater? And and when we have this understanding of who Jesus is, the cornerstone, the, the heir of all things, the beloved son of God, the ascended, risen, enthroned king of kings, when we have this, this worldview, we recognize that Christianity is not a self-help philosophy. It's not a way of life. Jesus is the risen and ascended king. He is on the throne, and our hope is anchored in him. As we are gathered here today, Jesus is on the throne of heaven today. And when I know that that's not just a philosophy or a, a, a way to approach life, It's not something that works for me one day and doesn't work for me the other day. If that is the absolute truth of who God is, then my life finds shape and direction in him because he is the cornerstone even on the worst days. Even when he says no to us in ways we did not want him to say no to us. The main thing is who he is and what he's done and what it means that we are united to him. The cornerstone. See, by the authority of Jesus in my life, And in your life, we are saved and we are led. And when we entrust him, he will become for us a cornerstone upon which we can safely and confidently stand. You can anchor your life to him. And as we look at Jesus, as we look at these descriptors of him in our text, cornerstone, it's big, it's strong, it's bold. And we look at beloved son, we look at the, the grand attributes of Jesus. We can't forget he's also tender and compassionate. Mark's gospel has given us this depiction of the heart of Jesus towards the afflicted, towards the hurting, toward the lost. Jesus is both firm and solid in our lives, but he is also tender and compassionate. And when you weep, he weeps with you. And so for those of us that are in Christ, for those of us that have trusted in Jesus, for the Christian, Jesus as the cornerstone means something profound. It means that you and I are submitted and surrendered to his lordship. We let him define the shape and direction of our lives, and that means something. There aren't two options. He's either the cornerstone or he isn't. He is to be lord over all. He is to be king, and I am to follow him. The temptation, as we all know, is to focus our attention on the temporal small things, those painful moments when he says no. But if we focus on the times Jesus says no, we we forget that he said yes to the cross on our behalf. Though he knew no sin, he became sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. He said yes to the cross. And like I hope for my grandson one day, I hope for my grandson and him and his mom are talking and he's 19 or 20 or 23 and, and Abigail is talking to him about the way she chose to parent him and discipline him. I hope that he connects the dots and he's like, oh, yeah, mom, I get it. I hated you for a while, but I, I see you love me. 
I'm so sorry. I, I see that you are for me. I see that you are, I get it. There will be a day for you and me. And I believe, listen, man, I, I talked about 10 years of loss. There's some of you that have had losses far worse than mine. And I know sometimes as Christians, we get really uneasy with, with, uh, with open wounds. We don't necessarily know how to enter into each other's pain and just be okay with the open wounds that our brothers and sisters are struggling with. Let me tell you, it's okay to just sit with brothers and sisters in the ashes when they're suffering. You don't have to have an answer. We don't have to put a Christian cliche or a Christian bumper sticker on top of those things. And there's going to be some ways in which God will begin to reveal to you in this side of eternity, on this side of glory, as many of you know, there'll be a day when, when you begin to recognize the way God is redeeming even that horrible thing. And we get to see glimpses of it before we stand in the presence of Jesus. But mark my words, there will be a day when we stand in the presence of Jesus, when he'll pull back all the blinders, and we will see perfectly and infinitely and beautifully the comprehensive, redemptive work of God in its fullness. And we will be like, oh God, oh God, I didn't see it. I shook my fist at you. I walked away in rebellion. I thought you were taking things from me. I thought you hated me. God, you were for me every step of the way. We'll see it one day. So as we look at our text, we see the questioning of Jesus' authority. We, the, we see the explaining through the use of parable in Old Testament, the, the, the explanation of Jesus' authority, and then we see the response of Jesus' authority, and we're invited to respond ourselves. And I thought it was important for us to speak one quick truth about application. There's been application already in this message, but I want to just speak quickly just about the way in which we, we, were trying to, we want to invite the men and women of heritage to, to engage in a life of discipleship, right? We believe that is the call of the church, right? You, you know, our, if you're familiar with heritage, you know that we are a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That's not, just a, that's not just something we say. That's honestly, not that we do it perfectly, but that's honestly our greatest desire is to make disciples to make disciples because a disciple is someone who makes a disciple. And that's why we've defined discipleship in this way. You can see it on our little placards as you walk out. You'll see it on the big blue canvases in the, in the lobby. A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and who is leading others to follow Jesus. We believe a disciple has all three of those characteristics, right? And that's everything we do is trying to raise up disciples who are doing that, right? That we can send you away to do glorious works for the glory of God and be sent to the ends of the earth which is what the church is to do, right? So that's everything we do is centered on that, right? And so one of the tools we've created, and we talk about it all the time, is our discipleship assessment tool. I'm not going to belabor the point. You can, you can scan it and take the assessment on your own. It's on the back of your bulletin. But here's the very last, the very last marker of a disciple that we have identified as a church is that we believe the disciple has a willing submission to God. And this is all about his authority, right? Those Pharisees and those scribes and those chief priests and those elders did not have submission to God, right? They were about their will, not the will of God. We believe, and we think the scriptures support this, that a disciple of Jesus has a willing submission to God. And so if you were to endeavor to, to go through this survey that we've created to help grow our church, you would be asked to, to correspond or to interact with four statements. And I'm going to ask these statements of you when it comes to your relationship to the authority of Jesus. Statement number one. I welcome the opportunity for God to tell me I am not permitted to do something I desire to do. Is that true of you? Second statement we ask you to interact with. I welcome the opportunity for God to tell me there are things I must do even though I do not desire to do them. Here's the third statement we ask you to interact with. My life demonstrates a deep desire to do his will in all areas. 
It is not compartmentalized by areas that I allow God to speak into and areas that I do not allow his input. And the last statement we ask you to interact with when it comes to your relationship to the authority of Jesus in your life, your willing submission to God, is this. It is a complete joy to obey God, and it is never a fight. When you think about the totality of your life, is this true? It's not true of me. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. It is not true of me. I have lots of work to do as a disciple. You can pray for me. I struggle with a lot of these things. But when I begin to think about your life and my life, the totality of our lives, is it surrendered to him? Is there a willing submission to God in my thought life, in my sexual life, in my marriage, in my vocation, the way in which I think about my unbelieving neighbors and friends? Is there a willing submission to God when it comes to my, my, my talents and my time? Am I giving that over to the Lord? Is he my Lord? Is he my king? Jesus once said, what shall it profit a person if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? And we well know that if you reject Jesus, you are on your own, utterly alone under the condemnation of God. However, if you receive Jesus for who he is, the beloved son, the promised heir, the cornerstone, the rightful king, the one with authority, if you receive Jesus for who he is, you will flourish. Not in the worldly sense, you will prosper. Not in the worldly sense, but when you receive Jesus and you build your life, your life takes shape and direction from cornerstone Christ. When you do this, you are connected to the one upon whom all life and all joy is founded both now and for all eternity. You and I were made for this. We were made to build our lives on the cornerstone. Amen? Pray with me. Father, so thankful for the opportunity we get each and every week to sit under the authority of your word. And Jesus, I... I God, I, I'm the first to confess that when I look at my life and if I honestly lay down my life in your presence, there is not a willing submission in every area of my life. I'm fighting against you, Lord. You know those areas. God, by your spirit, would you, would you be at work? Would you bring sanctifi sanctifying work into my life and into our life as a church, God, that we would journey toward this willing submission to your authority? God, help us understand what it means that you are the cornerstone. God, help us understand what it means for us individually to build our lives upon you, to let our lives take their entire shape and direction and be uh, utterly informed by this truth that you are cornerstone, that you are king. God, help us to surrender our lives and our families and our marriages and our resources and everything. God, help us understand what that means to submit and to surrender those to your will. May you have ultimate authority over our life. God, help us understand what that looks like as a church. God, I pray that you'd have your way with our church, that you'd be the cornerstone upon which we build everything that we do, God, and that as we do so, you would meet us in profound ways. And God, I'm, I'm mindful today of those men and women here who are in the midst of a painful, difficult season. Maybe they're dealing with a no that they just don't want to listen to, they don't want to hear. It's a, it's a painful no. It's a difficult no. And God, my heart is, I'm compassionate for them. God, I think, we, we all know what it's like to deal with heartbreaking disappointment and, and unforeseen challenges and painful losses. But God, you are not asleep at the wheel. You are sovereign and you are in control and you're at work in our lives. God, help us to understand what obedience looks like in the midst of these difficult times. God, help us understand what it means to be surrendered to your authority. Ultimately, Lord, we just want you to be glorified in and through us. We want you to be exalted in and through us, God, by your spirit, would you enable us to willingly submit every aspect of our lives over to you, God. We love you.
pray these things in Jesus' name.